0: A with Bishop Julian Portius. Welcome again. You're listening to QA with Bishop Julian, a show where you can ask the questions about the faith and the church and have them answered, and we also have discussions about the faith as well. If you'd like to have your questions answered, email us at askcradio at cradio.org.au. You can also tweet us at Cradio Limited or phone us on 0280051530. 1530 If you're on Skype, and I know a lot of people are these days, you can Skype us, that's also Cradio Limited, one word. So add us on Skype and we'll add you. But first, as we always say, the man with the answers, Bishop Julian Porteus. Welcome, Bishop Julian. Thanks, Adrian. How are the preparations for World Youth Day 2011 in Madrid going?
1: Well, of course, I'm uh, I'm getting more and more uh, involved as we move closer to August next year. It seems a long way away, but uh, we need to begin uh, preparing now. And, for instance, in Sydney, um, at the present moment, we, we're wanting to uh, get out to all the parishes and um, have young people speak at the masses to uh, talk to people about coming to World Youth Day. We've had a terrific response from the schools. They've got uh, some 420 young people already planning to go to wow. World Youth Day. We want to get 1,000 from Sydney, and uh, I'm sure other dioceses around Australia too um, can expect to have a really good response of people going to World Youth Day. So uh, right now, I think we just need to start talking to people about uh, registering, about um, planning and organising their time for August next year. August 16 to 22, World Youth Day in Madrid in Spain. Don't miss it.
0: Oh, look, if you've, and if you get the opportunity ever to travel to Spain, you, you absolutely do it. And uh, it's such a beautiful place. And, and in that atmosphere of World Youth Day in Spain, I mean, the, Sp- the Spanish really know how to put on a, a big show. They, they do that really, really well. So World Youth Day in Madrid will be, uh, I can imagine, will be absolutely brilliant. And um, with the pilgrimages, uh, something I noticed was that they go to other places beforehand. I've been looking up, you know, on harvest travel, you know, the different packages that are available. Uh, Why is it that we tend to go somewhere else beforehand and not just stay in Spain, for example?
1: Yes, that's a good question. Um, In Australia, we've had the practice of... um, preceding the world youth day uh, participation by a pilgrimage to some holy places look i think the reason very very simply is that we're traveling a long long way that's the time to get to a world youth day like the, the one before that was in cologne and now we have this um, one in madrid it's a long way for us to go um, it costs a lot of money in terms of transport uh, so we really want to if uh, like make it worthwhile. I don't think you can just jet into Spain and jet out again uh, and get the full benefit of the World Youth Day experience. And so we it by um, pilgrimages. And if you like to, we want to say to the young people who are going to World Youth Day, go on a pilgrimage, go to holy places, grow in the knowledge of your faith, um, go to places that really are important in, in Catholic history and Catholic spirituality. And this becomes a whole way that we enter into a quite a significant personal pilgrimage of faith, which climaxes when we arrive at the host city and when we meet with the Holy Father for the World Youth Day events.
0: And often these these pre-events are, are with with bishops, with their own diocesan bishops, with with yourself, with Cardinal Pell, um, and and across Australia, all the different bishops seem to go with their pilgrimage groups and you can choose things, and, and it, it gives the bishops a chance to be close to the young people and just spend some, I guess, not only pilgrimage time, but some relaxing time and, and really get to know uh, the young people of their own diocese.
1: That's very true, and, and bishops actually really enjoy these pilgrimages because it becomes a time when they can really relax and just be themselves among young people. And of course, young people, it gives them extraordinary access to a bishop. It is true, I'm a bishop and I (laughs) I know and I don't try to be difficult to get hold of, but you just are because you're caught up in so many things. And people often don't get much opportunity to have a cup of coffee over a table with a bishop or uh, even perhaps go for a swim or do some other activity with a bishop, really at close hand uh, over a Period of a couple of weeks. This is a great way, uh, I think, for many young people to really build a a close personal relationship with their bishop, and for the bishops to really get to know uh, the young people in their diocese. So, it really is a very unique uh, experience. And I think you're right. the, the The role of bishops and the young people. Is one of the great things about uh, the World Youth Day experience.
0: Well, one of the beauties of this particular program is that you can get access to a bishop. So uh, our first question comes from Genevieve from Caringbah, uh, and Genevieve has called in.
1: Q&A with the bishop. Um, my name is Genevieve from Caringbah. My question is, why can't priests get married? Thank you. Genevieve, thanks for your question. It can be uh, a question that that does intrigue a lot of people, particularly people outside the church, but also many Catholics too. And I think it's important to say uh, up front that that there are married priests in the Catholic Church. Uh, We were speaking last week about uh, the Maronite um, rite and the fact is that priests in the Maronite rite can be married. We've also seen a number of Anglicans who have been priests um, and married come over to the Catholic Church and eventually they have been ordained as married men. And uh, and, and so you, we do have this phenomenon of married uh, priests who are part of the Catholic Church. So people do get confused. Well, if you allow for these exceptions, why can't you make it a general rule? Why, why do we still keep this uh, tradition of... Uh, of the fact that priests in the Latin rite um, coming up for ordination make a commitment to celibacy, lifelong celibacy prior, prior to being married. And obviously we have to go back into history. We have to look right back uh, at the very beginnings of the church. And I think one of the key things that I always like to reflect upon in this in this regard is the fact that from the very time of Christ, celibacy was seen as something that was valued as a sacrifice, really, as as a sign of of giving oneself completely and totally to the service of God and God's people, I think it's worth making the point that Jesus himself, of course, was celibate. Uh, we think John the Baptist, he was also celibate. St. Paul spoke about the fact in Corinthians, he said, you know, I've been celibate. And so we have a number of people who uh, have lived a celibate life because they are very directly and immediately connected with the, with the life and mission of, of Christ. And of course, Jesus himself said that uh, there'll be some who will accept celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. In other words, there'll be some people because of their desire to devote themselves single mindedly and totally to uh, the work of, of God's kingdom, the promotion of God's kingdom that they will uh, embrace a celibate life. And as we look at the history of the church, we can see from the very beginnings of the church that there was always this stream, if you like, of, uh, of people who embraced celibacy for purely spiritual motives. And this became, if you like, institutionalised uh, fairly early in about the third century when we see uh, large numbers of people withdrawing to the deserts and entering into monastic communities and embracing the celibate life in a monastic uh, way of life. So the church uh, had this tradition of celibacy. Now people quickly point out that the, the apostles weren't uh, all celibate. That's very true. We, we hear Saint Peter's. Um, we been told about Saint Peter's mother-in-law, and and other disi- other of the disciples were clearly married men, and. We also can learn that uh, numbers of bishops in the uh, in the early church were, were married, and so we say, well, why is it that um, marriage is also being accepted, but at the same time, the church has now said that no, if you want to be a priest or a, a bishop, ultimately in in the Latin rite, then you need to be to be celibate. And it really is a, an evolving tradition it's it's something which grew in the church over the centuries and more and more because of the particular if you like dignity of the priesthood the particular nature of the priesthood as as being someone who is an altar christus who, who who is there representing christ standing in the person of christ you know like it's worth remembering when the priest celebrates the various sacraments he will say i baptize you I anoint you, I absolve you. Now, it's not the person themselves, it's, it's Christ. And, and so the priest is actually acting in the name of Christ. And this awareness of, the, of, the, of the, the dignity of the priesthood, the particular character and nature of the priesthood has led to a greater reflection by the church to say, look, it's appropriate that somebody who is actually acting in the name of Christ should be as Christ was completely and totally celibate, dedicated solely to the task of uh, the proclamation and the bringing in of the kingdom of God. So over the centuries, more and more, the teaching of the church and the the direction of the church was to say celibacy is what we believe is appropriate for those who are exercising the priestly ministry. And eventually it became mandatory in the church. So it's it's a growing tradition. right from the very beginnings it wasn't something thought up 9th 10th century or something it was something from the beginning but by the 8th 9th 10th centuries it was clearly understood to be the way in which priests should uh, be in order to to live out their priestly ministry in the church
0: and it also allows them to i guess give themselves totally without having um, you know, married life is in itself. Uh, people forget this—a a vocation on its own, and and it's almost uh, uh, one of those situations where, if one, it's a bit, it's a bit harder to commit totally to to both of them. I mean, I'm sure there have been people, and you cited the the Anglican priests who've converted to Catholicism. Um, But these have been exceptions to the rule.
1: That's right. Uh, That's right, Adrian. I think it's uh, something, too, that Catholics uh, really appreciate about their priests. And and I I know that Catholics have a tremendous love and respect for their priests. Um, And part of it is that they know this priest has nothing else in his life. He's only there for us. He's only there to serve the work of Christ, the work of the church. And if you like, the priest has then an undivided heart. He hasn't got the responsibilities, great as they are, of being a husband, of being a father of a family, and also being a father, a spiritual father to his people in the parish. The people in the parish know, know and we call him father because they say, yes, he's our spiritual father. He's there for us. He's there offering himself, doing everything he possibly can for the people. And so part of the idea of, of the celibate life for priests is that priests are completely and totally at the service of God and the church. And this is, a, I think, a great and noble tradition in Catholicism.
0: It doesn't come easily, though, does it?
1: No, it doesn't. And uh, every, human, every priest is a human being uh, and every priest must struggle, as, as all people do struggle to be faithful to their calling, to be faithful to their ideals. And um, it's, it's a price ultimately to so say, I'm prepared to pay this price because I want to be a priest really singularly and completely devoted to the work of God and the service of God's
0: people. And that's why we really have to pray for our priests that they can have the strength to to persevere and to endure. But thank you for your question, Genevieve. I'm sure this is a question that comes up quite often, and and people, especially outside the Catholic tradition, uh, and even now within the Catholic tradition, ask that question because there's something that seems counter counterintuitive, but uh, you know, they, they are intrigued why people make this sacrifice. So thank you for your question, Genevieve. You're listening to Q&A with Bishop Julian Porteus. Send in your questions to 0280051530. Our next question is a uh, Facebook question, actually, from Jake. And uh, this is about three questions for you, Bishop Julian. Uh, the question is, I would like to ask about Concelebrated Masses. If there is one priest, one victim, one sacrifice, how does it work with more than one priest? Do they all say Mass? As only one Mass is said with multiple priests, wouldn't it be more beneficial to have individual Mass said by each priest as the more Mass is said, the more graces which are made available? If one Mass is said with multiple priests, are we, as the lay members of the church, cheated of masses which could be offered. What church rules, laws, or rights cover this issue? Here's a tough one for you, Bishop Julian.
1: Thank you, Jake. It is a good, uh, good question, and actually a, a, a tough question in a way. Uh, as you know, concelebrated masses were one of the, um, if like innovations or. or one of the new things introduced into the church uh, from the Second Vatican Council. And largely, it has to do with the fact that, firstly, there is only the one Mass. And it's important to remember there is only one priest. It's not the priest who says the Mass. The one priest is Jesus Christ. Every priest shares in the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And so when a priest celebrates Mass, it's really Christ who is the one. It's Christ's sacrifice that's being celebrated. And um, the priest therefore uh, is acting in the name of Christ. So it's it's not simply a matter of numbers. Um, I mean, that can be tempting to say, well, wouldn't it be best for every priest to be saying Mass um, by himself? And and as you said there, that wouldn't that mean more graces are multiplied? Well, yes, in the sense that more Masses will be celebrated, but there are occasions when I think it's very appropriate for priests to concelebrate Mass together. A, a great example of this, by the way, was uh, earlier this year, and I was very privileged, to be at what I think was the, the largest concelebrated Mass ever in history. It was at the end of the year of the priest, and uh, Pope Benedict invited priests from across the world to join him together on the Feast of the, uh, the Sacred Heart in June. To, to conclude the year of the priest and he invited them to con- celebrate the Mass with him. 15,000 priests joined the Holy Father in the celebration, the concelebration of Mass in St Peter's Square. It was a most extraordinary and wonderful moment. I was privileged to be there and uh, it was just a wonderful sense of the, the unity of the priesthood. Here we were, priests from across the world, all gathered around the Holy Father, all celebrating the one sacrifice of the Mass, all deeply united in our priesthood. It was a very beautiful and very moving moment. So there are occasions when it's quite appropriate for there to be a concelebrated Mass. Another example of that is that in Holy Week, prior to the celebration of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday night, the liturgy uh, quite specifically has it that the, the bishop and the priests of the diocese come together for the chrism mass. It's the mass in which the three sacred oils that are being used for the sacraments in the coming year are consecrated by the bishop. And this is a moment in which the priesthood is particularly celebrated and honored. And uh, so the liturgy actually says, if you like, mandates that this occasion be a concelebrated mass. So, while we would say that the normal way in which Mass is celebrated is by a priest leading the community in the worship of God in the liturgy, there are appropriate occasions when priests can come together from concelebrations. Many of them are just simply because that is an appropriate thing to do. The occasion deserves it, the occasion is, is quite appropriate for a concelebrated Mass.
0: Cradio.org.au. Thanks for your question, Jake. And by the way, if you want to ask a question the way Jake has, you can go to our Facebook page. That's radio.org.au. Type that into your Facebook search and you'll find us there and, and like us and you can become a friend of us. And uh, you can also hear more editions of Q&A with Bishop Julian. Just go to our website, our new website, cradio.org.au. And remember, you can have your questions answered via email as well, if you prefer that, askcradio at cradio.org.au. Also, you can tweet us. You can, as long as it's under 140 characters, at Cradio Limited or phone us on 28 And you can also connect to us via Skype, Cradio Limited. So many ways you can ask a question. And if you feel a bit nervous about uh, asking a question on the phone, we don't mind if you don't use your real name. You just have to come on on the answering machine and put your question you don't even have to give your name we would love to have your name but you don't have to give it you know we we'd love to have your questions because we want this show to be interactive this is Q&A with Bishop Julian we'll see you same time next week